Welcome to the podcast of New City Church. We hope this podcast inspires you on your journey of inward and outward transformation. Please join us on Sundays. You can find more information on our website, grownewcity.church. God bless you. So uh, we are uh, talking today about the Ten Commandments, and I just... Um, Gosh, there's there's a lot of sermon. I've heard a lot of sermons on the Ten Commandments, and so I'm I'm always trying to trying to fresh things up. I'm always trying to get y'all the zestiest takes on the Bible as as possible. And one thing that I've been researching a lot lately is developmental stages of faith. Developmental stages of faith, because at both New City and at Northeast, we are trying to look at ways for our, our worship service to be continually engaging and meaningful for people of all ages and not just grown-ups. And and so trying to think of like what are the faith growth needs of people of different generations. And so I've been looking a lot at um, what it means to encounter God at each of the stages of your life. And today, I might uh, have, as just open visualization, I might invite you to start thinking about how you met God in each of the stages of your life. As a, as a baby and as a child, how did you meet God when you were growing up? How did you meet God when you were in 20s and 30s and such? So we're going to walk through, as kind of a meditation, uh, each of the decades of a 100-year life as we reflect on the Ten Commandments, because I think that there's something about this text that speaks so true and poignantly to people of all ages, but that um, every stage of life can learn something from this. And so we're, we're gonna reflect on this a little bit. I also wanna name that as a community that intentionally centers marginalized voices and tries to counteract oppression in all of its forms, um, uh, this is also a chance for us to uh, uh, repent of internalized ageism and and to turn around in a culture that like is deeply obsessed with not thinking about aging, deeply obsessed with hiding our age. Uh, this is kind of a chance for us to reclaim a little bit of of what it means to age, because there are things that you can learn about God in each decade of your life, and if we like disregard everything past. 30 or 40 or 50 or whatever, then we are, are sacrificing, we're amputating some of our spiritual life. You know what I mean? Like if, if we see ourselves as like being able to meaningfully grow for the next however long you're going to be alive, then like that gives something to be, kind of be excited about. That's, that gives something to look forward to, which is so countercultural uh, and so different from how we look at age now. Um, so yeah, I've been looking at faith development and thinking about the gospel, which simply means good news, by the way. And and I thought about uh, chapter one of our lives, which I'm thinking of as kind of like the first 20 years of our lives because it works better for the sermon. But <laughs> the the like the first 20 years of your life of faith for formation are perhaps the most important uh, uh, years of your faith formation. It is in the first 20 years that a baby learns, I believe, that God is a God who is one. A baby intuitively knows that the God of the universe and the God of parents uh, and the God of a favorite blanket and the God of flowers is all the same one thing. It's all new and it's all amazing. Babies understand the awe that we are supposed to hold for the rest of our lives. 
and we rapidly forget it and shed it to protect ourselves. And yet, there was a spiritual growth that happened. There was a good news that God was offering to babies and you as a baby. And as your muscles developed and your bones grew, you probably as a child learned symbols and speech and stories and play. And this is when images start to matter. You know, it starts to matter that Jesus took bread and cup. It starts to matter that there's water in the Bible because there's this intuitive sense of play that starts to come about. Uh, Children understand symbols and images. And when we convey our faith, it's not like we have to wait to be like, okay, once they can learn the words of the Bible, then they will be able to encounter good news. No, children can encounter God's good love through images. And so it's worth kind of asking, like, what are the images that were good news for you? Uh, And for many kids, eventually a strong sense of justice and fairness comes in. Any of you who have young kids in your life know that sometimes a deeply insistent uh, sense of justice and fairness, whether or not that is grounded in reality, is certainly strong as, as children developmentally start to understand that there is a sense of reciprocity in the universe. And in this developmental stage, anthropomorphic images of God start to make sense. Like like in our um, in our reading when it was like, God is passionate, or in other texts it says, God is jealous. Like that's kind of an accessible thing for kids uh, who are starting to understand the anthropomorphic, human-ish sense of God. And then a kid becomes a teenager and a rigorous, vicious negotiation begins with themselves, with authority figures, and with friend groups. And you might remember, if you've uh, been a teenager before, that emotions can be intense. And sometimes that's because of the like chemistry explosions that are happening in your hormonal system, okay? And sometimes it's because it's a chance to feel. Like teenagers are expanding what it feels to be a person. And that bite of intense emotions, that rush of energy, of intensity, whether it's good or bad, shows what it means to be alive. Like, I don't know how many of you listen to, like, moody music by yourself in high school. Mom, don't bother me! Like, that is, like, gripping, reaching for this emotional intensity that's, like, I know that there's something more about what it means to be alive and I'm reaching for it. And this all comes with this rise of power and attraction and pimples and socializing. Many teenagers have rapturous spiritual experiences. Many teenagers have rapturous spiritual experiences where every cell of their body feels alive. But those experiences are often cloaked to the outside world by their scowls and big sweatshirts. <laughs> I never stopped wearing big sweatshirts. But the, the point is, like, teenagers have their own sense of spirituality, their own sense of knowing that God is one, their own sense of, of life being real and there being good news in the world. And for this, uh, teenagers have spiritual insight that the rest of us should pay attention to. Chapter two. I've met people who have only, 
I, I just want to name, like, I've met people who only ever expected to live until they were 20. So I don't want to, like, uh, go through this sermon, sermon, going through 100 years of life, pretending to be like, yeah, and we all kind of equally expect to be 100 years old because nothing is going to kill us. Like, like, I know folks who were like, I don't know if I'm going to make it past teenage years. And I want to name that, like, uh, if that's you, then I'm hoping that the rest of the eight chapters of this story can still speak to you. Uh, but for many of us, 20 is the time when deep questioning started to happen as we become more responsible than ever and started exploring our identities with questions that we didn't dare utter earlier. Started to kick the tires of our worldview, you know? And if it hasn't come yet, more exposure to different cultures and beliefs become available. More people start to realize that really there is an other not in a not a pejorative sense, but that there are people in the world who do not share your experiences. There are people in the world who have different cultural frames and understandings. There are people in the world who do not believe hardly anything that you believe. And, and this is a stage where we really start to reckon with that because we are deciding ourselves what it means to believe and have a frame of reference. And yet, the other is also entirely relatable and lovable. Like, community is possible across difference. And if you have the great privilege of creating community across difference, you know how life-giving it can be. The challenge of this uh, era, though, is the challenge of carving out an image of ourselves without making an idol of ourselves. Uh, is it possible to love myself without loving only myself? Is it possible to work without making my work the center of my identity. As if the work of my hands were greater than the hands that formed me. Is it possible to make it through adulting, which is a process that seems to consume my whole attention as everyone else is skating by in life and I'm like, I literally don't know how to do laundry. Like, is it possible to make it through adulting without centering only my life? Conversely, this is also the stage of faith when people can easily find themselves in movements and revolutions in causes. Uh, this is a stage where there's a lot of revolutionary energy. And some folks find themselves, ironically, by losing themselves in causes, uh, which of course is no way to stay in activism for any extended amount of time. But this is a stage where people pour and pour because they don't quite know where the bottom of their own cup is. And it's a bitter truth that we must taste ourselves, what it feels like to grind, what it feels like to work, to have our knuckles white with effort as we are trying to struggle for a new world. It's necessary for us to cut our teeth on the revolution because we will spend the rest of our life always wondering what could have been if we didn't give ourselves to a better world. And so we try, we try, and sometimes we get burned from that. And, and the swing back and forth uh, of, of how do I care for myself? How do I care for my world? How do I um, maintain an appropriate boundary? All of these are questions of what it means to abide with the question of idolatry. What it means to take something good and not make it God. Chapter three. For many folks at New City, uh, this is the decade when people start yelling, Jesus Christ! as they start raising their own kids and realizing how hard it is. Uh, but this is, by the way, this, that is not using the Lord's name in vain, right? Like, that's just kind of like what we 
said in like the 50s or whatever. Uh, using the Lord's name in vain is more like saying that God will do something that she herself did not authorize. Uh, as in uttering, as if you could just kind of like be like, I'm a Christian, I'm going to utter a magic spell that will, that means that I can speak with the authority of what God is commanding all of us to do. And perhaps interacting with children reveals to us, uh, as many of us in our 30s are starting to interact with children more, whether it's biological or because you're a gunkle to uh, some, some little tykes, gay uncle for those, yeah, okay, we are... We're tracking. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah. And so like I'm interacting with these kids and, um, and you know, kids will say things like my daddy's going to buy me a mansion. And it's like, yeah, that is using your daddy's name in vain. <laughs> like, that, like your daddy's not going to buy you a mansion <laughs> kid. <laughs> and, uh, and similarly, like uh, saying something as heretical as like, God is going to get rid of my homosexuality is using the Lord's name in vain. Like the God did not ordain that God did not authorize that God didn't want that because why would God make us so fabulous and gay if that's <laughs> what God wanted? You know, like God, it's like using the Lord's name in vain is so much more than just like censoring little words from your vocabulary. It's about deeply trying to attune to God and be like, okay, God, what do you actually want? What do you want from my life? What are you hoping for, for the world? And how do I only use your name when it's grounded in that love and that liberation? That's what it means to be mindful of using the Lord's name in vain. And, uh, and it's harder. It's, it's, it's way harder. Um, Chapter four, some say that this is the highest producing age of a person's professional life. And it's also uh, when many folks find themselves sandwiched between raising kids and taking care of declining parents. Um, and it's a lot of work, uh, but it's also matched with a little bit more, potentially a little bit more stability. And the idea of taking a full day off of work seems very unrealistic. This perhaps delusion of work or addiction to busyness, as understandable as it is amidst such pressures, is of course a certain form of arrogance in itself. Truly, even if people of this age are going to church, they have lost their inner knowing that we need God. That even if you have a house or a yard, or you're the president, you do not own the whole world in our hands. And so Sabbath is our challenge to our own addiction to work. Sabbath is our challenge to our own sense of dominance and control over the aspects of our lives. Sabbath is saying, what happens if I can truly rest? What would it mean if I could trust in God's rest for a day? And what would it mean if I were to support my community members so that they could rest for a day? Like, how can we be thinking of uh, uh, this detachment from work in a hyper-capitalist society for the sake of, of renewing ourselves, for the sake of understanding who God is? And did you catch the, in Exodus, this is such a different, um, different thing from where so the Ten Commandments shows up twice in the Bible, once in Exodus, once in Deuteronomy. And uh, Deuteronomy gives a totally different reason for the Sabbath. But in Exodus, the reason for the Sabbath is because God rested on the seventh day. God created for six days and then rested on the seventh day. And so for Exodus, the reason why we take a day off every week is because we become more like God when we rest. We become more like the creator of the universe when we like pump the brakes on our life. Uh-oh. We become a little bit more like God when we put a pause on the other 
productive identities that we have and trust in the God who made us. This is the discipline of Sabbath. Chapter 5. Uh, so the scholar Thomas Dozman observes regarding the commandment to honor your father and mother and parent that this commandment is not just for kids. This is for adults to observe for their parents, like adult children to observe for their parents still. And furthermore, this is more largely about a household remaining whole. This commandment is about how can your household remain whole. And as many folks in their 50s and 60s uh, consider their last leg before retirement, the question is, how am I going to honor the house that God has put me in? And for queer people who have had to have families of choice, like we know that house doesn't always mean like biological, like you did the straight thing and now you have a kid, right? Like it's like, like we know that house can be so much more expansive. Jesus showed us that house can be so much more expansive. Uh, I don't, yeah, uh, <laughs> I'm not, I'm going to not going to loop back on the phrase, the straight thing, but you all, you all get what I'm saying. Um, I'm not actually totally clear on some of the details of that, but okay. So, um, like that we're, we're in charge of taking care of our house. This is about taking care of your house. Do you know that the word ecosystem is related to the Greek root word for house? So like we're in charge of taking care of the house and that includes the house. <laughs> like that's the house. So we have to honor our parents, but that also means like honoring mother earth and father sky. Like that also means like honoring what created us for the sake of being able to uh, uh, continue life going forward. Like we have to take care of the house. And as people are ending the, uh, their time uh, in a professional life, that is a big question. Um, I'm just going to name that for uh, commandments six and seven. Like I, there was a lot of un, like needlessly triggery kind of things that I could have said here. So we're just going to uh, take three seconds to imagine what Tyler would have preached about. Okay, we're ready. Okay, so uh, chapter eight: Do not steal. I was researching this, and you know what's interesting? Pew Research found that only 1% um, of people 85 years and older said that life turned out worse than they expected. Only 1% of people 85 years and older said that life turned out worse than they expected. Now, uh, you know, there's a lot behind that data. Like, maybe it's because they thought that life would be terrible all along, and they were like, ha-ha, see, I'm right. But, like, there, I do think that... Uh, oh, and, of course, like, there's also the factor of, like, maybe people who make it to 85 have had health care and income, and maybe, like, it's more a statement of that. But I don't know. Like, 99% of 85-year-old-plus don't have perfect health care. 99% of 85-year-old-plus don't have perfect lives. Uh, I just think that there's something else there, that for many folks who get to this age range, there's a spirituality that can go deep, deep, deep. Have any of you ever met a true elder? I don't mean someone who's just like old chronologically. I mean someone who's like spent 80 years of their life doing the work and practice and metabolizing trauma. Like that's what I'm talking about here. In many regards, this is the decade where I see the most fruit after decades of faith practice. But faith practice isn't just coming to church, as important as coming to church is. Uh, faith practice is also about like what it 
how you respond to the people in your life passing away and kind of a lot of people in your life passing away. What happens to your soul as you reach deeper in that? By practicing your faith, I mean what it means to relate to your body as it's not able to do what it previously was able to do and still finding acceptance for that change. For truly, that is the only path to peace that there is. And further, perhaps accepting change was the only path of peace that we ever did have. But it's this generation that starts to reckon with that seriously. But I've also seen a hardening at this age. Have any of you ever met any hardened uh, folks? A uh, deep fear that grips them totally and completely. Um, in a few people, I've noticed a real disgust uh, for young people. In a few people in this age, I've, I've noticed a real disgust uh, of, uh, for the future. And so they live a lifestyle that robs the next generation of what it means to have a meaningful life. Like I've, I've met people who chronologically are old, but they are not elders because they are not passing forward to generations that chance to flourish. And they're robbing. And so uh, in, in, a few, in a few of these age groups, we see people voting uh, to not increase taxes to fund schools, not because they don't have money, but because they don't want to pay for someone else's kid. As if there were any kids that were not our kids to care for. In a few of these folks, I see lifestyle investments that will rob the world of the kingdom of God that people in their 80s could bring. And this is what's worth noting. Like when you reach your 80s, whenever that might be, there is a way that you can bring about the kingdom of God into the world. You can bring beauty and love and justice into the world that is unique to that. Chapter 9. Uh, Harry Belafonte, y'all know? Uh, uh, this week, yeah, wait. Uh, Harry Belafonte passed away this week at the age of 96. And uh, he was the son of Caribbean immigrants, and Belafonte inspired a, uh, a craze for calypso music um, he, with hits like Deo, Deo! Yeah, you know. Uh, and Jam Jamaica Farewell, and he, he starred in Hollywood films like Bright Road and the ever provocative Island in the Sun in which he, a black man, was in a romantic relationship with a white woman. Oh my gosh. Many people censored this movie, like Bandit. Um, and as successful as he was, uh, you know, in the year 1957, he sold more records than Frank Sinatra and Elvis Presley, uh, by the way. <laughs> He was so much more than an entertainer. Belafonte was a confidant and advisor to Martin Luther King Jr. And he funded the grassroots activists of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, one of the rare figures who was able to bridge these separate groups within the civil rights movement. Uh, and he wasn't perfect. He had a temper and acknowledged extramarital affairs, which I don't mean to plaster over. But what I'm saying is that Belafonte was able to leverage his celebrity to tell the truth to the world. Belafonte was able to say like, hey, all of you are bearing false witness to what is going on and I'm trying to tell the truth to the world. And his acceptance speech of the Spring Iron Medal that's offered by the NAACP, Belafonte used his award acceptance time to talk about gun control. He said this, in the gun game, we as in the black community are the most hunted. The river of blood that washes the streets of our nation flows mostly of the bodies of our black children. And yet, 
When the great debate emerges on the question of the gun, white America discusses the constitutional issue of ownership while no one speaks of the consequences of our racial carnage. He didn't say that in his 20s. He didn't say that in his 30s. He said that in the last decade of his life. Belafonte was committed to telling the truth in the last decade of his life. Last chapter. You know, researchers and life insurance policy folks, some of you are like in the insurance, thing, in the insurance game, are making predictions of how long we're gonna live because how long we're gonna live depends on like the cost of insuring that life. And they're saying that in not too short of time, it'll be pretty common for people to live past 100. Pretty common. Improved medical practices, pharmaceutical breakthroughs, and uh, improved public health matters will all make this possible. Perhaps even living to 120 will not be uncommon. And what's interesting to me is, of course, what ramifications will it have on our faith practice if people are living to 120? Uh, people like me have always tried to find developmentally appropriate ways to cultivate and express faith, but what will happen when people literally have a couple more decades than they would have if they were born a century ago? Could it be that the collective wisdom of a new wave of elders pushing the boundaries of long life might carry with it everything needed for us to transform our world a little bit more like the kingdom of God? Could great-great-grandparents be the secret to a more compassionate and just world? It seems not only possible, but entirely probable. That is, of course, unless we never deal with the consistent desire for us to have, for us to have something that other people have. You know, like that extra 20 years of life at the end of our life could be the amazing gift to bring about the spiritual revolution of the world but it might also be the most miserable of our life if that entire 20 years is spent thinking about everything that you've lost, everything you don't have, or just focusing on what you lack. And that's scary to me because it kind of feels like being trapped. But what I've learned from my elders is that it takes decades and decades to practice to find satisfaction. It takes a lifetime to practice Gratitude. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, we have to start practicing being thankful right now. We have to practicing not coveting what other people have for our own lack right now. Because by the time that we're 120, we're going to be lying in the bed that we have made for ourselves. By the time that we're 120, we're going to either be uh, consumed with our own trivial spiraling concerns, uh, uh, our own self-ego kind of stuff, or we are going to be speaking like Harry Belafonte at the end of our life. You know, like this is the option. This is the kind of elder that I want to be. This tells me that it's never too early to start practicing. You know, uh, the rest of the Pentateuch, Leviticus and Deuteronomy goes to great length to describe the law. And the 10 commandments really aren't laws. It, it's not quite accurate to say that the 10 commandments are laws because they apply to all situations the laws in Leviticus and Deuteronomy apply to specific situations. It's more like these are like the principles, the commandments, the, uh, uh, the ineffable truths that we carry over a life for what it means to be uh, a flourishing human. And uh, I just want you to know that um, your faith is going to change. And that's a good sign. Your faith is going to go through some developmental growth spurts, and that's a good sign. 
Some of you are still questioning some stuff that you learned when you were a teenager, and that's, that means that you're doing it right. That means that you're developing as a person. Like the last thing we want is a 60-year-old you having the same beliefs as the 15-year-old you. Like you're going to be a grown adult. And, and every generation of your life is going to give you the gift of offering a different seed for the kingdom of God. And our practice this year and every decade is to find out what that is. Amen? Amen.